This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by Succession. Do you ever miss the times when spoiled brat billionaires made you feel things? Like when we were all rooting for Jeffrey Bezos when Amazon began. Try watching Succession today. Welcome to episode 131 of The Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's hottest podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. Today, we are talking about carbon, a word that simultaneously refers to the sixth element on the periodic table, the greenhouse gas that is the primary driver of climate change, and the word I use when I'm stuffing my face in spaghetti carbonara. That's right, I'm carbon, baby. Now, as any longtime listeners know, for the last year and a half, Every third deep dive has been about a carbon bomb. Carbon bombs are oil and gas projects that have the potential to emit over 1 billion tons of carbon dioxide. And there are 195 planned or in-progress carbon bombs around the world that, if they were to proceed as planned, would blow past our international climate goals. And the Earth is going to need some top-tier help if they're going to take down these carbon bombs. I mean, they're going to need the best closer in the goddamn city. The Guardian unveiled 195 carbon bombs around the world, Harvey. I need you to get rid of them. I don't want to be the one to tell you this, but I can't just magically eliminate these projects. Bullshit. You're going to make these goddamn carbon bombs stop right now, unless you've forgotten it's my name on the goddamn door. Lewis, I'm going to need you to destroy these carbon bombs. Barbie, well, Jessica signed it to you. Besides, when did you start caring about the environment? I don't care about the environment, but I sure as hell care about this firm. So are you gonna help me, or am I gonna have to break your goddamn legs? I'm sorry, Harvey, I can't. I'm watching my neighbor's cousin's cat. You could be watching a child for all I care. Lewis, these are all goddamn excuses, and I'm not gonna hear it. But my back is against the wall. Then break the goddamn wall. Lewis, you're living life here. I'm gonna need you to live it here. Of course he just delegates it to Lewis. But that's okay, those carbon bombs are gonna get lit up. But today, for our final deep dive of 2023, I wanted to take a step back from carbon bombs to focus on carbon more generally. Our guest today is a very, very special one, Dr. Michael Mann, Presidential Distinguished Professor and Director of the Center for Science, Sustainability, and the Media at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Mann published a new book a few months ago called Our Fragile Moment, How Lessons from Earth's Past Can Help Us Survive the Climate Crisis. And after reading the book and having listened to Dr. Mann speak in the past, I had some stuff on my mind I wanted to share with you all, and I am so glad Dr. Mann took the time to join me for this episode. The thing is, there are a lot of misconceptions about carbon, how it warms the planet, why the planet has warmed and cooled in the past if humans weren't around emitting carbon, and which side is its good side for pictures. I know you all think its left side is more flattering, but carbon actually prefers its right side, and its boyfriend is just gonna have to deal with that. But the biggest misconception I look forward to addressing today relates to carbon's lifetime in the atmosphere. 
I've mentioned before that carbon lives in the atmosphere for over a century, which in theory would mean any carbon we emit today would still be up there in 2100, trapping solar radiation and warming the planet. It'll be old, though I'm sure it'll age perfectly like Dolly Parton. And by that logic, once we as humans stop emitting carbon or reach carbon neutral, then there would still be global warming for all that time, because all the carbon we previously emitted would still be there and still be working. It's like when you tell your dog to stay and then leave the room. It'll stay there until told otherwise. That's a sucky thought though, right? That global warming would continue after we cut our carbon emissions? It's actually something I learned in college, and many climate folks thought it was the case for some time. But as we'll explore today, that idea of a carbon lag is actually not quite true. There is good news on that front, and Dr. Mann is here to share it. So today, we'll discuss how carbon dioxide works, what misconceptions we have about it, and how we ought to think about carbon moving forward. If you want to take two minutes to help out the Sweaty Penguin, you can either leave us a five-star rating and review, or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. Doing either earns you a special shout-out at the end of the show, joining the Patreon gets you merch, bonus content, and a whole lot more. But first, it's time for Carbon 101. Carbon dioxide is a molecule featuring a carbon atom cozied up between two oxygen atoms. You can imagine it like the carbon atom is the cup and the oxygen atom... Sorry, you didn't hear that from me. Each oxygen atom is connected to that central carbon atom by a bond, and when infrared radiation from the sun hits these bonds, they vibrate and twist. According to the bonds, they like to be shaken, not stirred. This wobbling is what we call molecular vibrations. Now, if you remember back to many of our past episodes, you know that my favorite law of thermodynamics is that heat is energy. Actually, that's the only law of thermodynamics I know, and I'm like 75% sure on it, but don't tell my high school physics teacher that. Or chemistry teacher. Seriously, why do people listen to me when I try to explain science? I do know that's true, though. Heat is energy. And in the case of these wobbling carbon dioxide atoms, Temperature is simply a measure of the energy within molecular motion in matter. So if you think about it, infrared radiation hits these molecules, results in increased vibration, and as a result, creates heat. This vibration also then leads to more collisions among energized particles, and these collisions trap infrared radiation in the atmosphere as it tries to escape. It's almost like a game of pinball, but the ball is infrared radiation, the flippers are carbon dioxide, and the person playing the game is Morgan Freeman. And don't try to tell me otherwise, the only reason I sleep at night is because I know Morgan is watching over me and narrating my life to me in my head 24-7. But this proverbial pinball game is extra challenging, because the flippers are constantly moving and banging into each other. And as humans emit more carbon dioxide and put more metaphorical flippers into the atmosphere, it becomes that much more difficult 
for infrared radiation to actually escape into space, ultimately raising the temperature of the Earth. Now keep in mind, the greenhouse effect itself is all natural. Just as a greenhouse lets sunlight in and prevents heat from escaping in order to keep plants warm and turn Frosty the Snowman into the most tragic ending in modern cinema history, sorry Titanic, CO2 and other greenhouse gases perform a similar function, keeping our planet from getting too cold. Without any greenhouse gases, it would be way too cold, like worse than Vermont. But on the flip side, human activities like the burning of fossil fuels have led to an increase in CO2 above natural levels, making the planet warmer than we might desire and leading to a host of issues we've discussed for the past four years now. But let's hold off on the present day stuff because, well, present day is on Monday. We've got some Christmas content in the next deep dive, don't you worry. But I want to spend a little time on history for a moment, because very often in talking about climate, I hear people say, but the climate has always changed. And yeah, of course it has. That's like your wife asking you to change your baby's diaper, and you saying, but the baby has always pooped, it's just a natural cycle. Like, yes, that's true, but kind of irrelevant to the fact that you need to change the damn diaper. And in fact, carbon dioxide and the greenhouse effect actually played a big role in those changes. As I mentioned in the intro, we are very fortunate to have Dr. Michael Mann on the show today. In his new book, he actually breaks down some of that history. I decided that it might be instructive to actually look at the lessons that Earth's climate passed. After all, much of my early work was in paleoclimate, the study of past climates. Why don't I revisit that? Let's look at the entire sort of history of Earth's climate from four and a half billion years ago when our planet first formed and see what lessons we can take away when it comes to sort of this uh, dueling between sort of the you know, stability of the climate. And we see some evidence of stability on very long time scales. But at the same time, we see episodes of fragility as well. How fragile is it? How close are we to crossing that, you know, irreversible threshold, uh, danger threshold? That was sort of what drove me to write this book. Let, let's look at the lessons we can learn and try to answer that question. As Dr. Mann says, our scientific understanding of past climates is actually a big part of what informs the concerns of today. Paleoclimatologists are sort of like detectives of the Earth's history, uncovering the secrets of past climates. They're like if Encyclopedia Brown actually chose to do something useful with his time. And there are multiple methods that paleoclimatologists can use to estimate historical carbon dioxide levels. One of these involves analyzing sediment cores, or long tubes of mud and sediment pulled up from the ocean or lake beds containing layers of ancient debris, minerals, and tiny fossils. 
Sediment cores can stretch back millions of years, preserving vital clues about bygone eras. I even found a core that proved definitively that it was Colonel Mustard in the billiards room with the candlestick. That dude always looked like he was hiding something. Historically, as organisms died, sank to the bottom of lakes or oceans, and became part of the sediment, carbon would get trapped. And by taking these sediment cores and looking at the ratios of different types of carbon in different layers, paleoclimatologists can figure out how much carbon dioxide was in the air at various points in history. A similar process can be done with ice cores. When snow falls, it captures tiny pockets of air, and urine, but mostly air. Over thousands of years, this snow compacts into ice, but it preserves these air bubbles. And so like they do with sediment cores, paleoclimatologists can extract these ice cores and study the concentrations of CO2 or other chemicals within the air bubbles, giving us real samples of the atmosphere at various times in history. Which means technically, technically, we could have a sample of a dinosaur fart somewhere. I'm sure that's not the takeaway I'm supposed to have from that, but I'm gonna believe it until emphatically told otherwise. And then there are stalagmites and stalactites, which also capture minerals from the water, effectively sealing the climate story of the past within their layers. Through these three methods, we can assess atmospheric carbon dioxide levels through history, and extrapolating from that how the greenhouse effect may have influenced historic climates. Armed with that information, we can come to some really interesting and informative conclusions. First off, Dr. Mann explained how the greenhouse effect not only contributed to historical climate changes, but also worked as a stabilizing mechanism. If we look at how the climate has varied over billions of years, we see a general trend, whereas the sun has gotten brighter, and it has. The sun was only 30% as bright four billion years ago, three and a half billion years ago when life first formed, only about 70% as bright as it is today. And so if you do the calculations and you assume sort of a current atmosphere, a current greenhouse effect, the Earth should have been a frozen planet then when the sun was dimmer. But it wasn't because there was a higher greenhouse effect. There was more carbon dioxide. There was more methane, which is a potent greenhouse gas. And remarkably, as the sun has sort of been dialed up as the sun has gotten brighter and brighter over time, in general, carbon dioxide levels have gotten lower and lower in such a way that the temperature of the earth has stayed within habitable bounds. It's, it's a pretty remarkable uh, restoring mechanism, stabilizing mechanism. It's a sort of planetary homeostasis, uh, a sort of thermostat that the climate system has to keep itself within those livable bounds. So basically, the Earth has a mind of its own. It's also been forcing me to host this podcast for four years on threat of blackmail. Really don't want those pictures of me peeing in the woods getting out. In all seriousness, this is actually a real thing. The sun was way less bright hundreds of millions of years ago. But there was also way more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. 
For one, the hotter interior of the young Earth would have generated more vigorous plate tectonics, which would lead to more volcanic outgassing of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Those old-timey tectonic plates were into some really weird stuff. I'll show you a video later. And two, you might remember from our episode on carbon capture a couple years ago, that we talked about a process called chemical weathering. Quick review, rain is slightly acidic, and that's because it brings with it some atmospheric carbon. When it hits a rock, the acidic rain will slightly weather it. That's right, rock, paper, scissors, aficionados, water beats rock. Really, everything beats rock if you just give it enough time. Rock's always been a sitting duck. And after the rock is weathered by this rain, the exposed rock will react with the carbon to form bicarbonate. This bicarbonate runs off into the ocean and gets stored away in the ocean floor. So that process happens today, and is one way the Earth naturally sucks carbon out of the atmosphere. But hundreds of millions of years ago, the Earth was covered in water, so there wasn't exposed rock to weather. That combined with the increased tectonic activity, led to an atmosphere with way more carbon dioxide. But as the sun got brighter, the Earth sort of self-adjusted. When the planet would get warmer, more water would evaporate, which would lead to more precipitation and more exposed rock, which would lead to more chemical weathering, which would lead to more carbon capture. And as life took hold on Earth, Natural selection favored life forms that used carbon since it was so abundant. Plankton, foraminifera, and later corals, mollusks, and early crustaceans would form their shells using carbonates. And when they died, their skeletons would get buried under the ocean floor, storing that carbon away. Evolution also figured out cyanobacteria, or organisms which use photosynthesis to take sunlight, which is abundant, water, which is abundant, and carbon dioxide, which was then abundant, to create oxygen and energy in the form of sugar. Can you imagine being able to create sugar out of just sunlight, water, and carbon dioxide? I mean, talk about pure profit. Jelly Belly Candy Company, let's talk. In fact, it was that explosion of photosynthesis that led oxygen levels in the atmosphere to skyrocket, which then led to the formation of the ozone layer, which protected the Earth from ultraviolet radiation, which ultimately allowed life to come out of the ocean onto land. It was also through that extra oxygen that new forms of life evolved to breathe oxygen, like your mom. What does all this have to do with climate? Well, it tells us that the Earth has a host of ways to self-regulate in the face of natural climatic changes. When the sun was dimmer, the greenhouse effect was stronger. When the sun was brighter, the Earth found ways to suck that carbon out of the atmosphere and balance things out. I don't know where Mother Nature found such a good therapist, but I'm kind of jealous. I really hope she's in network, because I fully intend to schedule a consultation. And we can take a little comfort in that concept, right? If the Earth gets nudged in one direction or the other climate-wise, it does have mechanisms to restore itself. Unfortunately, we can only take that so far. 
While new life helped reduce the greenhouse effect in the face of a brighter sun, Dr. Mann explains that it eventually led global cooling to spiral out of control. But there are other examples where that all spiraled out of control. Um, and in fact, the, the most remarkable example isn't where we spiraled away into a hothouse planet, but Earth actually became a snowball. Earth became covered in ice billions of years ago. It has to do with the rise of uh, photosynthetic life that sort of um, that began to utilize a pathway for metabolizing carbon dioxide and, and producing oxygen. And uh, as those oxygen levels rose, oxygen readily scavenges, it reacts with methane. And so there was a huge drop in methane concentrations. Once our atmosphere became oxygenated, methane couldn't last very long like it could in the very early earth. And so all that methane quickly got scavenged from the atmosphere. The greenhouse effect dropped quickly and that actually brought the carbon cycle essentially to a standstill, and we went into a frozen climate, a snowball Earth. So there are examples of, of instability. Uh, we know that if we push the system too hard, it can run away into these uh, ice house or, or uh, potentially these hothouse states. It's a reminder that you can push the system a little bit, and it stays within livable bounds. You push it too hard, all bets are off. That Snowball Earth episode almost killed off uh, all of life on Earth. And by the way, it was initiated by life. And during that Snowball Earth phase, the greenhouse effect nearly grinded to a halt. In fact, it took those same processes we discussed before, tectonic activity leading to volcanic outgassing of CO2, no chemical weathering, no photosynthesis, no your mom, to restore the greenhouse effect and heat the planet back up. So if the climate has changed before, and the Earth has all these self-preservation mechanisms working in both directions, why is today's climate change a concern? For one, it's happening way faster now than it normally has. Climate change back then was a tortoise, whereas climate change today is a Hennessy Venom F5 race car. Current warming is occurring roughly 10 times faster than the average rate of warming after an ice age, and carbon dioxide from human activities is increasing about 250 times faster than it did from natural sources after the last ice age. And yes, that includes that time Manfred farted. While the Earth weathers gradual change well, we've seen historically how extreme change can literally snowball. And two, not to repeat what I think has become a little bit of a cheesy line, but our concern about climate change is not really how the Earth will fare over hundreds of millions of years. It's about how it will affect us today and in the coming decades. While I don't think there's an imminent threat of human extinction unless ChatGPT rises up and, I don't know, asks us to extinct ourselves and we say yes, not really sure how this would work. But while I don't think we're going extinct, climate change is already making Earth less safe, less comfortable, and less prosperous in some pretty extreme ways. 
addressing that concern, which is more of a short-term concern in the context of a multi-billion-year-old planet, is really what's important here. But even though Earth can't self-restore in our lifetimes, there is a pretty cool thing it can do, and that leads us into the main carbon dioxide misconception I want to cover today. Previous wisdom, which I was actually taught in school and had repeated in several episodes of The Sweaty Penguin, was that if and when humans cut carbon emissions to zero, the planet will continue to warm for several decades. The rationale being that greenhouse gases, and particularly carbon dioxide, live in the atmosphere for sometimes over a century. Apparently the atmosphere has rent control, so there's no way carbon dioxide is giving that up. And while in the atmosphere, those carbon dioxide molecules are continuing to absorb infrared radiation and warm the planet. It would not be until these gases live out their entire life that the climate would start to stabilize, let alone revert back to that of pre-industrial times. That means worsening natural disasters, worsening sea level rise, worsening food and water shortages, worsening incidences of ice cream melting before you can eat it, worsening everything for decades after we have quote-unquote solved climate change. And I was worried that this phenomenon would in the future leave people casting doubt over all the work done to that point to protect the climate. I was hammering this point home as much as possible in hopes that when that time came, people would understand this aspect of how the greenhouse effect works. And as Dr. Mann says, I was not alone in taking that approach. Climate advocates and climate communicators still, you know, when they're talking about the greenhouse effect and carbon emissions, you'll still hear them say that there is this uh, lag effect, um, uh, this so-called uh, delayed uh, warming, where if we stop putting carbon pollution into the atmosphere, cold turkey right now, the surface of the planet will continue to warm up for decades because of what we call thermal inertia. The ocean you know, has this huge thermal mass, and it takes a long time for it to heat up, just like it takes a long time to, to get a, a, a pot of water boiling on your stove because there's all that thermal mass. The ocean is sort of the same way. It takes it a while to fully warm up in response to the heating, in this case, the heating by carbon dioxide, uh, carbon pollution. And that's all true. That's a real mechanism, but it's only half the story. And Dr. Mann actually brought up a dimension there that I hadn't heard before our conversation. Surface temperatures continuing to warm is one thing, but oceans are a whole other lag. Getting the ocean to warm up is like convincing a toddler to put on their shoes. It takes an infuriatingly long time. Unlike the land, which heats up faster than a microwave pizza, the ocean's vast and deep body acts like a colossal heat sponge, soaking up warmth at a pace that makes watching paint dry seem like a high-speed car chase. So the other layer to this carbon lag idea was that not only would surface temperatures continue to warm after humans stop emitting carbon, but oceans would too, perhaps even longer than the land. So that was my understanding until a little under two years ago, when I attended a virtual press briefing from our friends at Covering Climate Now. 
The press briefing was titled, The Best Climate Science You've Never Heard Of, and here's a quick snippet from the introductory remarks from Mark Hertzgard, longtime climate journalist, executive director of Covering Climate Now, and environment correspondent at The Nation. But the gist is that contrary to long-held assumptions, large amounts of temperature rise are not necessarily locked into the Earth's climate system. As soon as emissions are cut to zero, temperature rise can stop within as little as three years. Three years, not the 30 to 40 years that I, for one, have been reporting for a long time and that most of us as journalists thought was the scientific consensus. That clip should give you a sense of the pervasiveness of this misconception. It wasn't just me getting this wrong. Mark shared that he and most of our colleagues were wrong about the scientific consensus. I mean, the only misconception more pervasive than this in the media is that Travis Kelsey is planning to propose to Taylor Swift and she's not interested. Quick aside, I saw this story all over Facebook, and when I went digging, the source that provided the story was a tarot card reader who doesn't know Taylor or Travis, just claims to have read their future. I'm not saying he won't propose ever, obviously they'll live happily ever after and have the most talented children ever to grace the earth, but Travis has football practice, and I think he's a little more focused on that than diamond ring shopping. If he wants to take a break, though, I'm playing against him in the fantasy football championship, and I just picked up Rasheed Rice, so any triple coverages he could probably be much Anyway, where was I? Right, carbon lag. The carbon lag doesn't quite work as we had thought, and here's why. Carbon does live in the atmosphere for many decades and continue to absorb infrared radiation. That warming effect is real. Oceans take a while to heat up, and that's real. But as Dr. Mann explains, there's also a counterbalancing effect that's going on simultaneously. But what's also happening, once we stop emitting carbon, the oceans continue to pull carbon out of the atmosphere, the plants on land as well, but mainly the oceans are pulling that carbon out of the atmosphere. So the CO2 levels are actually dropping and the greenhouse effect is dropping. And so those two things, the thermal inertia, which would continue to cause warming for several decades, and what we call the carbon cycle inertia, which is in the opposite direction, which causes a decrease in the greenhouse effect. Those two things, almost like magic, it's quite fortuitous. Those two effects, one going like that, the other going like that, almost perfectly cancel. Exactly. While the carbon remaining in the atmosphere creates a warming effect, the Earth's natural carbon sinks, mainly the ocean, are sucking carbon out of the atmosphere, creating a cooling effect. For one, the ocean is full of phytoplankton and other organisms that perform photosynthesis, turning carbon dioxide into oxygen and cocoa puffs. Well, technically just sugar, but, you know, their version of cocoa puffs. And two, carbon dioxide actually dissolves in water. Carbon dioxide reacts with the ocean water to form carbonic acid, CO2 plus H2O, equals H2CO3. And then the carbonic acid will be split into bicarbonate, which is HCO3 with a negative charge, and hydrogen atoms carrying a positive charge. The bicarbonate gets stored in the ocean, goes through some more reactions, gets used by crustaceans to make their shells, and as a result, that carbon is out of the atmosphere. By the way, I'm just assuming everyone loves chemistry and Breaking Bad wasn't a fluke. But the good news, as Dr. Mann explained, 
is that that carbon removal process effectively cancels out the warming that would occur from the aforementioned lags. And as a result, within just a few years of humans stopping emitting carbon, the global climate would stabilize. It would start getting up early, exercising, eating vegetables, even try meditation for a week and then fall off the wagon, but insist it really liked it and will definitely try to pick it back up again. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying the damage already done is reversible, at least not on human timescales. Ice melt in Greenland and Antarctica, whose ice sheets were formed during very cold periods in Earth's climate, will not be reformed anytime soon. And furthermore, a stable climate that's 1.5 degrees Celsius hotter than pre-industrial times is still a climate that's 1.5 degrees Celsius hotter than pre-industrial times. Even if the climate isn't changing, a warmed climate will continue to spur more intense heat waves, wildfires, hurricanes, etc. It just won't be worsening. It's like when your friend gets absolutely plastered, starts making bad decisions, so you take their drink away. Like, sure, the problem won't escalate from here, but before you intervene, she was making out with some stranger at the bar and now wants to go see his band, and as long as the alcohol she already drank is in her system, you are not changing her mind on this. That said, a stabilized climate is better than an unstable one. Step one to fixing the problem is just stopping the bleeding, and that's something we can do in our lifetimes. We'll talk more about how to actually interpret this news in the second segment, but before we do that, I want to talk about some of the ways in which things would remain unstable. Yes, temperatures would level off, and that's awesome. That's almost as awesome as Mariah Carey and Brian Tanaka splitting up. Mariah, I just want you to know I'm here for you. I'm more than happy to talk or be a shoulder if you need anything. I'm not looking to problem solve. I'm just looking to listen. Did I mention I can cook? But even though temperatures could level off, what happens when the ocean is taking up more and more and more CO2 for all these years? But it's another problem created by putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere we just said, well, some of it is absorbed by the oceans. In fact, the thing that's going to stabilize temperatures is the fact that the oceans are taking up that CO2. But when the oceans take up that CO2, that produces you know, bicarbonate, it, 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 carbonic acid. It creates a more acidic ocean, and that's a threat to sea life. It's a threat to calcareous organisms, to coral reefs which you know are not only just these remarkable natural wonders like the Great Barrier Reef, which I had a chance to, to see a few years ago. Um, it's being impacted by the warming, by coral bleaching, which is from the warming. It's being impacted by ocean acidification from the CO2 that's building up in the ocean. That's gonna continue to get worse as well. Again, if we can slow it down enough, then there's some reason to believe that there is some adaptive capacity there for us, for other living things. When oceans absorb this CO2, it changes the composition of the water. It's kind of like adding a little lemon juice to water, or a little sulfuric acid to matzo ball soup. Just me? When we have that chemical reaction I talked about before, you end up with that bicarbonate, and you end up with hydrogen ions. And hydrogen ions make the water acidic. The pH levels of the ocean decrease. And this 
increased acidity can be a big problem for marine life. It can affect everything from tiny plankton, to big fish, to the ingredients for Mr. Krabs Krabby Patties. Just kidding, obviously they're made out of imitation crab and whale barf. Why else would he kidnap a whale and claim she's his child? It's true though. Ocean acidification impedes the ability of oysters, clams, sea urchins, and corals to build and maintain their shells and skeletons, causes blindness and disorientation in fish, rendering them helpless with predator detection, and by virtue of all that, impacts the entire oceanic food web, endangering sea life altogether. On land, this ecological impact ripples through economies, heavily reliant on fisheries and shellfish industries, jeopardizing livelihoods and food security, particularly in regions like Alaska, where the seafood sector is essential to their culture identity and economic stability. So even though temperatures would stabilize after we stop emitting carbon, ocean acidification won't for a while, and that's an important challenge to prepare for. Another such issue is sea level rise. But there are other impacts, you know, like the response of ice sheets um, and the warming of the oceans that, like I said before, you know, it takes a while to fully heat up the ocean. And that remains true, regardless of, you know, this new understanding. It's still true that it takes a really long time for the entire ocean to warm up in response to the heating at the surface. What that means is that um, there are decades to centuries to even millennia of sea level rise from thermal expansion of the ocean. As it warms up, it expands. Decades to centuries to maybe even millennia of sea level rise that's already locked in. Ocean temperatures are unfortunately destined to rise for many more decades than land temperatures, which will continue to prolong the two drivers of sea level rise, ice melt and thermal expansion. As for ice melt, if you head back to our episode on ice shelves from last year, the collapse of ice shelves takes a long time, but it is caused by warm seawater slowly chipping away at them. When ice shelves collapse, that can lead to glaciers, or rivers of ice on the land, falling into the ocean, and as they melt, rise the sea level. That series of events takes time to play out, like when you want to start a family with someone, but you're still in a situationship. But that explains why, in a 2022 Nature Climate Change study, scientists found melting ice caps just in Greenland will contribute at least 27 centimeters to ocean level increases, even if we were to collectively cease burning fossil fuels today, which I can't, I'm at the library and have to drive home. The paper found that this near foot of sea level rise is inevitable, and the committed sea level rise grows as more and more climate change is locked in. The situation is further exacerbated by something called the albedo effect. The albedo effect stems from the idea that dark surfaces absorb more sunlight because their color allows them to capture and hold on to the sun's energy, turning it into heat. Think about when you wear a black shirt on a summer day. Like, I get it, you like Brendan Urie, but if you just put on a light-colored shirt, maybe you won't be so hot. Just an idea. And as ice sheets melt faster in response to warming temperatures, they expose dark surfaces like dark seawater and bare ground, which absorbs more sunlight and further accelerates ice melt. 
The other driver of sea level rise is thermal expansion. Whereas ocean water heats up, it expands. This one's a bit more straightforward. It takes longer for the ocean to heat up than the land, and as the ocean heats up, it expands and causes more sea level rise. Get ready for the expanded ocean's dump truck, guys. I know you're going to want a slice of that cake. And we've already seen a glimpse of the consequences of rising sea levels, including population displacement, agricultural land loss, increased flooding, and infrastructure damage, which all pose significant threats to social, economic, and geopolitical stability. Even a few centimeters of sea level rise can cause noticeable damage for coastal ecosystems, which are essential for storing carbon, housing fish, and protecting coastal communities. By 2100, over $1 billion worth of property could be at risk in the U.S. alone, with potentially 287 million people and over 1 million square kilometers of coastline exposed to episodic flooding. Folks in vulnerable, low-income communities that reside in low-lying coastal areas with inadequate infrastructure could be disproportionately impacted by this rise in sea level. All of these things are very concerning problems, and again, even when surface temperatures stabilize, these problems sadly will not. All that said, Dr. Man's news is good news. Yes, we still would have to actually stop emitting carbon for it to pan out, and yes, even if we do, there are these issues of sea level rise and ocean acidification. But that's still a way better outlook than my previous understanding of the carbon lag. In the next segment, we'll discuss what optimism to derive from these findings, how we can address these lagging ocean acidification and sea level rise issues, and why Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You is actually about me. Even if it wasn't consciously, we all know deep down that's how she feels. wish you could enjoy a show that many take very seriously, but you just want to baby-girlify silly little terrible awful people that hold the fate of the world in their hands? Then Succession is for you. With Succession, you can forget all about whatever the hell Elon Musk continues to do with Twitter or X, and just put your feet up and relax with this feel-good satirical analytical look at the very system that runs our current way of life. Doesn't that sound fun? But wait, there's more. Romances, zingers, characters incapable of expressing emotions until it destroys them and you. Will they ever have a proper family therapy? I guess you'll just have to watch and find out. Succession, funnier than half the Emmy-nominated comedies, because it's real. So what do we do with the information that if and when we stop emitting carbon dioxide, global warming can halt within three years? Do we celebrate that there's a potential to reach a stable climate within our lifetimes? Maybe see if one of those local zoos that does birthday parties can host? <laughs> Honestly, I'd take any excuse to drag a friend to the zoo. Or do we curl up in a ball and panic intensely? I thought this news was clearly good news, but... I was surprised to learn that some people reacted to this news in a different way. When I was on that Covering Climate Now press briefing back last February, I remember many journalists in the Zoom chat were freaking out a little bit. 
They worried that by sharing this news, it would come off to some as saying, climate change isn't as bad as we thought, and would lead to less urgency to address the problem. And I disagree with that outlook for a couple reasons. First, we're journalists, we need to report facts, regardless of whether we like them or not. But second, I think that by knowing that we can see a stable climate in our lifetimes, and for us young folks in our lifetimes with plenty of time to spare even, it gives a ton of extra motivation, right? We can see the light at the end of the tunnel, like when you only have one final left at the end of the semester, or when the family moves to the farm and Marley and me and everyone can live happily ever after. At least that's what I'm assuming, I missed the ending. But some people didn't share that outlook, seemingly more worried about how this news could delay climate action rather than motivate it. I asked Dr. Mann about that concern, and here were his insights. Well, actually, this tells us that, that if we reduce carbon emissions now, it, it does make a difference. It makes a difference almost immediately. So it does give us that sense of agency. And I think it's important to communicate that. I think people who saw it the other way were like this idea that the committed warming you know, uh, sort of communicates this procrastination penalty. Like if we wait, if we hold off, we're locking in many more decades of warming. So we've really got to act now. Um, and so there are two, two very different sorts of psychologies involved in both of those ways of thinking. One is sort of negative psychology. The other is more positive psychology. Um, in the end, we've got to go with what the science tells us. And the science does weigh in on the side that actually gives us some positive psychology there. He's right. First off, it doesn't matter what we think. The science is the science. Like, you can choose to believe Pluto is a planet, but it just factually isn't, and, you know, get over yourself. But I do agree that the science lines up better with that more positive psychology. Before the carbon lag was fully understood, there was an understandable, gloomy feeling that could be hard to break out of. Why should we try if the planet will just keep warming for our whole life? But now, we know that surface temperatures could stop actively warming in our lifetimes, even by the time Travis and Taylor's kids graduate college if we play our cards right. Unless that tarot reader was correct and they're starting a family next weekend. But that understanding gives us a whole lot more agency, as Dr. Mann explains. And so you get a flat line. Once you stop putting carbon pollution into the atmosphere, surface temperatures on the planet stop increasing. That's really important because it communicates, you know, the that our actions, our efforts to reduce carbon emissions have a direct and immediate impact. Um, and so it really does communicate that that agency. And one of the themes that runs through this book and my last book is urgency and agency. Urgency, yes, we've got a problem. We've got to act now or it'll get much, much worse. Agency, we can do something. So to any journalists who are concerned to talk about this, yes, deliver this news. Shout it from the rooftops. Maybe get the fiddler to accompany you. I get why it could come off, like climate change isn't as big a deal as we thought, but that's not at all what the science is saying. The science is saying that climate change is a big deal, and we can get it under control faster than we thought. 
If we don't, we still have all the problems we did before. But if we do, that's something to be excited about. But speaking of problems, we did talk about some of those pesky lag effects that are still a thing. So let's discuss what to do about all that. Starting with ocean acidification. Obviously, the biggest thing is mitigating climate change, but there are some steps that can be considered while we work on that. One option is a technique called ocean alkalinity enhancement, where we can actually add certain basic substances to seawater to counteract the acidity. I personally suggest dumping a bunch of iced sugar cookie lattes with oat milk into the ocean. You know that'll get all the basic people to show up. Ocean alkalinity enhancement helps turn harmful CO2 into stable compounds, countering ocean acidification. Plus, it supports the marine life that relies on these compounds to thrive. Another option lies in restoring coastal and marine habitats, like seagrass beds, mangroves, coral reefs, and that seafood restaurant on the water that looks like it's one high tide from being swept into the ocean. By replanting seagrasses, preserving mangrove forests, and nurturing coral reefs back to health, we can create thriving environments where marine life can flourish. These ecosystems also have the unique capacity to capture and store carbon dioxide, making them tools for mitigating acidification too. Mangroves specifically have evolved to metabolize organic matter from oxygen-poor soil, releasing alkalinity into the surrounding water. It's also important to consider which communities and industries will be impacted most by ocean acidification. Finding ways to limit harm to economies or livelihoods for these people could be a major step, at least for humans, to handle a changing ocean. How about sea level rise? Again, there's a long list of possibilities and we'll barely scratch the surface, starting first and foremost with mitigating climate change. But when it comes to adaptation, Measures such as seawalls, levees, and sand dunes can help reduce the impact of rising sea levels and more frequent storm surges. Bonus, if we use dunes, then maybe Timothy Chalamet will come. Yeah, I know. Infrastructure planning could do a better job incorporating future sea level protections to prevent damage, both by keeping maps and models more up to date, and then using either regulations or market incentives to deter construction in low-lying areas. Elevated and resilient buildings that can withstand flooding and storm surges are possible solutions. And again, natural defenses, including the restoration and protection of features like mangroves, salt marshes, coral reefs, and seagrass beds, can serve as natural buffers against sea level rise and storm impacts. We actually just did a tip of the iceberg episode on solutions to sea level rise and flooding, so I'd encourage you to go check that out for some more detailed analysis and my lamenting being all out of Pop-Tarts. Still out, by the way, not that anyone cared to ask. Especially with these issues that are sort of locked in. The other thing to think about is the idea of loss and damage. We can avert a lot of damage, but we probably can't avert all of it. For context, we recorded this interview over the summer, so this was before this month's UN Climate Conference, which we'll be recapping in a few weeks. It was also before Susan flashed Kathy on The Golden Bachelor, otherwise I'm sure that would have been our main topic of discussion. 
but loss and damage became a huge talking point at last year's UN Climate Conference, or COP27. Often it is developing countries getting hit the hardest by these climate issues, and when they face ever-increasing costs to rebuild and make themselves whole, that's a big problem. Here's Dr. Mann talking a bit about how developed countries can play a role in providing resources to deal with this challenge. And I would say that's first and foremost, to prevent what we can, those changes we can, while adapting to those that are inevitable, especially uh, important because of sort of the differential consequences when you look at uh, sort of uh, people in you know the industrial world versus those in the global south uh, who have less resources, um, who have less resilience. So we need to make sure that there are resources to help you know developing countries in particular that are feeling some of the worst consequences and have the least infrastructure to deal with them. We're going to have to help them deal with that as well. And that's been one of the sticking points in the international negotiations and COP27 uh, was the, the loss and damage uh, sort of uh, the, the, the loss and, and damage uh, agreement, which was um, basically that wealthy industrial countries like the US and the EU are going to have to provide some assistance um, to developing countries so that they can deal with the impact that they're already facing. And by the way, we need to give them resources that help them build clean energy infrastructure. We don't want them building the same, making the same mistake we did, building all this fossil fuel infrastructure that'll generate uh, even more climate change. We have to make it worth their while to skip that stage and go directly to renewable and clean energy. Um, that's on us. That's on the wealthy countries of the world. We're the ones who created this problem in the first place. As longtime listeners know, I did an episode last year explaining why supporting developing countries is more than just a moral question, but a practical question. It helps us, and it helps them, and there's a number of reasons why. But regardless of which of those lenses you prefer, these are all very important considerations, especially with the knowledge that sea level rise and ocean acidification will take a lot longer to resolve than global surface temperatures. One more point from the first segment, which I, again, will barely scratch the surface of, is that a stabilized climate is not necessarily a desirable climate. The heat waves, hurricanes, and wildfires today are causing a host of problems, and I think we'd rather press rewind than press pause. It's like when your family is watching a movie and your sister leaves to go to the bathroom. Sure, you can pause and press play, but you know she wasn't paying attention for a solid 20 seconds before she actually got up. You're gonna want to go back a bit. <laughs> Obviously, we're far away from actually getting to this point. But we can one day become carbon negative and actually suck more carbon out of the atmosphere than we put in. This would reduce the greenhouse effect and ultimately cool the planet back to a more natural state. And there's a long list of options for how to do that, from scrubbers to direct air capture to reforestation to enhanced weathering to turning carbon into vodka. Yes, that's a thing. I don't know why these UN climate conferences aren't resulting in carbon vodka-fueled ragers. It seems like we're missing a golden opportunity. We've got a whole episode on carbon capture, too, which I'd encourage you to check out to learn more about some of these opportunities. I know today's episode presents a lot of stuff that still has to get done. 
mitigating carbon emissions, someday becoming carbon negative, and dealing with prolonged issues of ocean acidification and sea level rise. I get it, if that's overwhelming. But we cannot understate how amazing an opportunity we have to stabilize surface temperatures in the next few decades. Here's Dr. Mann reiterating just how important a point that is for us to understand. And that's, it. it's taken some time for that fully to penetrate into the sort of, even into the understanding of scientists in the field, let alone the public and policymakers. And so there are other lags. There are lags when it comes to thermal inertia, and, and there are lags when it comes to sort of information penetrating into the public discourse. And I, and I think that's what we have here. But it's become really important to communicate that, especially at this time when so many fall prey to sort of a doomism and despair. It's a little bit of good news here in the science that the science tells us. There's some bad news the science has been telling us, no question. But there's a little bit of good news here, too, when it comes to our ability to still do something. Usually I'm the one to try to make things less overwhelming at the end, but I think Dr. Mann summed it up best. If we can acknowledge this real light at the end of the tunnel, we can motivate faster climate action, resolve a much larger chunk of the climate crisis than we might have previously thought possible in our lifetimes, and if we play our cards right, allow myself enough time after all that to go to the store and restock on Pop-Tarts. That wraps up episode 131 of The Sweaty Penguin. Take two minutes, help out the show, and get a shout-out at the end of the show by leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple or Podcast Addict, or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. You get merch, bonus content, and more. Clips today came from Covering Climate Now. Special thanks to our Emperor Penguin patrons, Lawrence Harris and Brownie Central. Thank you all for listening. Have a wonderful holiday, and I will see you next week for a quick little bonus episode to cap off 2023. Thank you.